0: Please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 11. We're going to pick up in verse 12, and as we do, just want to thank the worship team for leading us to exalt in the King whose name is above all other names. And we're going to read about this King, even Jesus Christ, as we look in Mark, chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. You can look in your pew Bible or maybe on your phone, but please follow along as we read from what is the very Word of God. Mark chapter 11, beginning in verse 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry, and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf. He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold And those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers. And the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations." But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, Whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have any, anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man, they were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word, would you pray with me now? Our Heavenly Father, we come to you based on the authority of Jesus Christ, your own dear Son, as we pray in his name, in allegiance to him, and with his protection and security. We pray in his name to you and ask you with our appeals, with our supplications, with our prayers, we come to you in the power even of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Oh Father, I pray that you would cause us this morning to see you as you ought to be seen, to know you as you ought to be known, that you would cause us, as even as we have confessed our sins this morning, you would cause us to flee from worldliness, that we would flee from ungodliness, that we would flee from the prince of the power of this age, and we would flee to Christ. Lord, there are people here who are strangers to Jesus Christ, who are here but they do not know the saving power of the forgiveness of sins that is in him. And I pray that you would do a miracle in their hearts and you would cause them to believe with repentance, with sorrow, and yet with joy as they cling to Jesus Christ, the one who died and who rose from the dead for the forgiveness of sins. Holy Father, we thank you for the gift of your word that your word has gone out even as there has been a conference in this city, the Kingdom King and Kingdom Conference. And we do praise you for your work in having the gospel go forward, the gospel of the sovereignty of Jesus Christ, and that we can all celebrate Christ's rule and reign, even that his kingdom has come and is yet to come. Lord, help us to be citizens of that kingdom to be oriented towards Jesus Christ and his rule and reign. We do thank you for churches testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ this morning. We pray that there would be many more churches established where the gospel is sounded forth. We think especially of Grace Cochran Church, Pastor Josh Carey this morning. We pray that you would empower him as then an ambassador of Christ, a herald of good news, and one who offers even the very bread of heaven to his hearers there in Cochrane. And I pray that they would feast even on such a meal, even the very word of God. Lord, there are many hurting here in this church, suffering in different ways, whether suffering in ways that we know about and also suffering silently. Suffering in relationships, suffering financially, and suffering physically, whether long-term illnesses or more, more dramatic things that have happened to them. But Lord, in all of these sufferings, we know that you know. We know that you are aware. And so we bring our sorrows and our cares to you. And we ask that you would act according to all of your rights and entitlements to even to bring about healing and transformation and hope and restoration I pray for the young people here I pray Lord that you would help them to walk in purity that they would be able to turn away from sin and that they would flee to Christ at a very young age and that they would live steadfastly for him in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation And I pray, Lord, you would use this church as a place to encourage young people to bear testimony to Christ. I also pray for the elderly in this church, that you would help them to finish well. That they would honor you as they seek to please you, not not merely in ways they've done in the past, but they would please you to the end and that they would endure because you are giving them the strength to endure. Lord, we thank you that your word is the means by which we endure. We ask that as we hear your word now, you would come to us in a special way, that your word and spirit would come and do a sort of a surgery upon us, that it would open us up at the depths of our being. And those things that must be cut out, we pray you would cut them. And those things that must be sewn up, you would sew them up. And you would do it by your word and spirit in a powerful way, for we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I do want to welcome you all here. I see many new faces here in in these densely packed pews, and I want to ask a question because I don't want to make any assumptions. I want to ask a question as you've come here this morning. And it's a very simple question. And the question is this. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? It's a question that is confronting everybody here. Do you know Jesus? And when I say that, I'm asking, do you know the real Jesus? Do you know the real Jesus? Or... Or is the Jesus that you claim to know a figment of your own imagination? It's a Jesus that you have kind of crafted in your mind. You say, yeah, I know Jesus. But is the Jesus you claim to know the real Jesus, the true Jesus? So, for example, do you believe that Jesus would never curse anyone? Do you believe that Jesus would would never employ physical force against people? Do you believe that Jesus would never ask you to forgive the person who hurt you? Well, when we look at Holy Scripture, the Word of God, we're, we're challenged in our belief about Jesus. Because we can have all kinds of ideas about Jesus that do not square with the word of Christ. We have to reacquaint ourselves constantly with the true Jesus because we start drifting away from who Jesus truly is and we start, so we start to craft a different Jesus that we prefer, that's easier for us to follow. And this is, of course, what has happened throughout time and history. We don't then follow the Jesus of Hollywood, not the true Jesus. We don't follow the Jesus of Islam. They've got a Jesus, but it's not the true Jesus. We don't follow the Jesus of some sloppy teaching in professedly evangelical churches. It's not the true Jesus. We must know the true Jesus. We must see Him as He is, as He revealed Himself to be. Now, in this passage, Mark records for us a series of interactions that Jesus had with his disciples and with the religious leadership of Israel. And through this passage, my hope is that all of us will discover more clearly who the true Jesus is. And possibly, you might be sitting here, and you might discover, I should say it will be revealed to you, The Jesus that you actually never knew. The Jesus, the true one. The one who reveals himself as he truly is. So the first thing I want us to see in this this challenge to us all about the real Jesus is to see that Jesus makes curses. Jesus casts curses. And you might be thinking, ooh, I don't know, I came to the wrong church. I don't know what this guy's going to do. What is he saying? But, But the curse of Jesus is cast here in verse 14. It is cast here. And he said to this fig tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now when you read that, if you're like me, like first instinct... It goes beyond our scientific beliefs. It goes beyond our our materialistic beliefs. And it's it's a challenge to that, to, to believe that a person could say words to a tree and the tree cease its biological processes and go from being organically alive to being. to be inanimate, and to be dead. It just goes against all of those beliefs. Now, assuming you're here and you believe the supernatural power of Jesus and His words, His authority, and His right to make or break, to build or plant, to create or destroy, assuming that you think that Jesus has the authority of the potter over the clay, Jeremiah 18, assuming that, why did Jesus speak that curse? Why did he say it? Well, he says there in verse 12, first off, he was hungry. He was hungry. And he was like, oh what? how how can he be hungry? Jesus is God. But this shows that God the Son, incarnate, the infinite God, eternal in the heavens, assumed human nature. He added to Himself human nature so that Jesus Christ was a real man. He was truly man. And the biological processes of a human being created from the dust of the earth by God and then for Eve, created from the rib of Adam, her husband, those biological processes, male and female, require food. They certainly require it in my household. A lot of food. The curse of the grocery bill, but anyways. God had provided food in the garden, of course, you know. Special food, even the food of the tree of life, to be eaten again and again as Adam and Eve were to populate the earth and bring it under God's dominion. Doing all that for God's glory, they would just kind of keep feasting on all the, all the trees of the garden and on the tree of life. They would have continuing life to do all that they were called to do. But we know they didn't do that. Instead, they ate from the one tree's fruit that was forbidden. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so they satisfied their hunger with what was forbidden. Jesus was hungry. But he didn't didn't satisfy himself with what was forbidden. Instead, in the words of the King James Version, Jesus, he said, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. That's my meat. John 4.34 Jesus was hungry, and it expresses his true humanity. And his true, according to the human nature, he does God's will. So there was a fig tree on the side of the road and it didn't bear fruit when it should have. So there was no snack to eat. It's like, you know, when one guy in my house, he eats the last of the cereal and then he puts the box back on the shelf. And the next guy grabs it and he sits down to eat his breakfast and it's empty. And he says, who ate all the cereal? A tree that doesn't bear fruit in its season when it's supposed to was not fulfilling its nature for which it was designed. Something was inherently wrong. It was missing its whole purpose. And so there is more going on here with the fig tree. The fig tree was not fulfilling its purpose for which it was created. And so... The fig tree, though, why why a fig tree? Why has Jesus cursed the fig tree? Why that one? And why is it included in our Bible? We have to realize that the fig tree is a very symbolic tree throughout the Old Testament. So, for example, speaking of God's judgment on Egypt in Psalm 105, it says, God struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country, Psalm 105, verse 33. Then later on in the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 1 and verse 12, in his prophecy it says, the vine dries up, the fig tree languishes, and God's people were called to repent in the face of that judgment. Now, a further judgment was described in the prophet Habakkuk who also offers hope in the midst of judgment in Habakkuk 3.17, a passage maybe you might know, where he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deers. He makes me tread on my high places. See, that's the hope. Everything was going to look bad. There'd be no fruit on that fig tree. That fig tree would not blossom. And yet I'm still going to rejoice in the Lord. But it was in the context of judgment. It was in the context of the day of the Lord coming in judgment. And so the fig tree not blossoming not blossoming, was the symbol of God's judgment. Remember how I said last time, last sermon, that everything Jesus did in his ministry had a purpose? Jesus, in cursing the fig tree, is offering a visual, par- a visual parable. He was showing that judgment was coming on Israel and that they would be judged just like Egypt was and just like the exiles were. The fig tree should have been producing fruit. And what happened? Israel should have been producing the fruit of righteousness. But instead, right at the time they should have been, they were not. And what would that fruit have been? belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, belief in the Messiah. And he's judging them. Now when Jesus said, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, his active parable was showing that, unbel- that like unbelieving Egypt and like unbelieving Jews, these unbelieving Jews of his time, who would not respond fruitfully in Christ, they would no longer be able to produce fruit unto God. It is essentially, with the cursing of the fig tree, Jesus is communicating that it is the end of the spiritual fruitfulness of Israel apart from Jesus Christ. It's the end. You're watching the news, just as I am. And you watch it, and you look at it with two sets of glasses, as it were. On the one hand... You see nations carrying out justice against the wicked in warfare. You see Israel seeking out the Hamas criminals. But you also see with the glasses of faith, you see that all the Jews who do not believe in Jesus Christ, they are lost and in need of salvation. Certainly all the Muslims and all the non-Jews, non-Christians that do not believe in Jesus Christ, they are lost and in need of salvation. Now, one more thing to notice then before we move on from the fig tree and this judgment that is on Israel. We move on from the fig tree and we're going to see the temple cleansing. If Jesus being hungry showed his humanity, then Jesus cursing the tree showed his divinity. That's that's the remarkable thing. This, This brief little episode illustrates the incarnate Son and the truth that He was both truly divine and truly human. Colossians 1.19 says, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And in Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Nick Needham commenting on the 3rd century Council of Chalcedon, from which we get the Chalcedonian Confession. He said, we could say that in Christ, for the first time and the last, all the fullness of human being and all the fullness of divine being have come together and exist together in exactly the same way as the Son of the Father and the Bearer of the Holy Spirit. Or, to put it more simply, he says, Christ is fully and truly man fully and truly god at the same time in a single person what a wonder what a wonder and that's something that for you to meditate on but that is illustrated by this hungry man who can curse the fig tree only god can curse And yet only a man is hungry. He is both God and man. We have that illustrated here. Now that's the question though. Is that the Jesus you know? Do you know a Jesus who can understand you so much? Because he himself was hungry. But he's also the one who would actually put a curse on a fig tree to illustrate the judgment that is coming on Israel. Is that the Jesus that you know? That Jesus, so that when he offers a salvation, a a way of escape from his own wrath, that you would flee to him for that security? Is that the Jesus you know? Or are you following a different Jesus? Different Jesus, Hollywood Jesus, some other Jesus. No, that's the Jesus you, you need to know. In verses 15 to 17, then, we move to the cleansing of the temple by Jesus and it it records it records the physical violence of Jesus against the money changers in the temple this is a very disturbing passage for some people and then for you know all the bros here they're like wow this is really cool this is Jesus clearing house we got but we got to see what's going on here it is then the quintessential jerusalem scene it's a battle over the temple i mean that's what we're that's what we're watching on the news right it's it's the battle over god's special dwelling place today jews and muslims are still fighting over that spot as the jews are praying at the wailing wall to a god that knows not jesus christ and the muslims worship allah The demonic lie in the Al-Asqa Mosque, mosque, the Dome of the Rock, it's all false worship. That's what's going on there. But what happens when the temple where the true God had specially dwelled is visited by God? Once again, visited by God, the incarnate Son. What happens then? It's an amazing scene. Would God find faith on the earth? What happens in the temple when the man comes around? Got to have Johnny Cash reference. When the man comes around. You listen to it after church. It'll, it'll apply the sermon. Trust me, it will. Jesus said in verse 15, he, enter, or he entered, Jesus entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Now, you may already know this, but at that time, the temple had become sort of like a farmer's market. You know, lots of ramshackle little tables and booze and People selling stuff and bartering stuff and it all being a little bit of a mess Uh, you know that's the way most farmers markets are Uh, maybe not Calgary farmers markets where it's all kind of pristine or whatever but anything in a small town it's all a little rough uh, if you've ever gone to one but but probably it's more it's different than a farmers market it's probably a little bit more like a tourist trap if you've ever been to one of those tourist traps you know what a tourist trap is so you're on vacation you go on vacation, you know, you're going to see the ocean, or you see the mountain, or you see the point of interest, wherever, wherever it is that you're going, and lots of people are going there, and they're all lined up to go see whatever it is, is you're supposed to see there. And then there's somebody, or a bunch of people, and they've got tables, and they're selling junk. Lots of junk. And they want you to spend your money on their junk, to buy the junk, and then afterwards... You look at it and like, "I got ripped off." <laughs> like I, I totally got ripped off. And of course, the worst is you're trying to buy a bottle of water, and it's 10 bucks. And, it's, and, and you know, they just bought it in bulk from Costco and they're just gouging you. It's a tourist trap. Well, that is what the temple had become. And you're going there and like, "I'm getting ripped off. I'm getting ripped off. This was exploitation of poor people who made pilgrimages to the temple to make sacrifices, but they didn't have enough money or enough resources to bring their cattle with them, to bring their sheep with them, to bring their pigeons and doves with them. They They didn't have the resources to do that, so they come, and they come to the temple, and they had to buy the sacrificial animals on site. And the merchants, they knew, they knew it. They knew they had them. And so they price gouged them. And, and you know what it's like. You know, it's always better to bring it from home. If you've got to buy it on site, it's always more expensive. And they were getting gouged. And you know what happens when you get price gouged on vacation? You don't go back. I'm not going back there. I'm not going back to that place. And that's what was happening in the temple. It was supposed to be a place where people from all different nations were coming to the festivals and offering these sacrifices, and once they'd done it, like, I'm not going back there. that, that That was brutal. People came with sincerity, and they got exploited. And so they became disillusioned with the temple, And worse yet, they became disillusioned with God. They became disillusioned with God. And I'll tell you what, it didn't just happen back then. It happens in churches today all the time. People go to the church, they get gouged, and they get disillusioned with the church, and they get disillusioned with God. It's a horrible thing, a wicked thing. So Jesus acted. The incarnate Son of God enters the temple and he cannot let this stand and he drove out those who were exploiting the people. It was physical and it was violent. John adds the detail in John 2.15 that Jesus said he he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from the temple courts. This word, to drive out, in Mark 11:15 15, is the Greek word ekbalo, to cast out. It's the same word used for casting out demons. It's the same word, ironically, that was used in Mark 1:12 of the Holy Spirit driving Jesus into the wilderness to face Satan. It is a forceful word. Now, you might be hearing this, and you might be uncomfortable with Jesus' actions here. And this is, of course, not a blanket endorsement of violence at all. And anybody who who does that today, they're wrong and crazy. But Jesus was acting like a new Joshua. You know Joshua? You remember even what Moses and Israel was commissioned to do? when they were to go into the land of Canaan, what would end up being Joshua's commission later in Numbers thirty-three fifty-two? 52, then you shall drive out all of the inhabitants of the land from before you and destroy their figured stones and destroy all their metal images and demolish all of their high places. And when Joshua took up that commission, he did it, and Joshua 24:18. the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. Jesus was doing the exact same thing. Now, you remember, if you were here last time, We looked at the prophecy of Zechariah and how it related to Jesus' triumphal entry when he's coming in on the donkey into Jerusalem. The end of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 14.21, we read this. this, So this is anticipation of the future. He says, Every pot... In Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them, and there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. A traitor, traitor with a D, like, you know, uh, Trader Joe's. Uh, We don't have Trader Joe's up here. Anyways, if you know what I'm talking about, grocery store. Merchants. It's an anticipation that there would be this holiness and righteousness everywhere. And then there's this strange line. There shall no longer be a merchant or a trader in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So it's anticipating the day of the Lord, a day of judgment, but also a day of deliverance. It's anticipating that in the future. And then it talks about, like, businessmen. What, What does that have to do with anything? Well, we see that is exactly what Jesus is doing. He is driving out the traitors from the house of the Lord. And if that's the case, then we should conclude from Zechariah 14.21 that Jesus was bringing the judgment of the day of the Lord to pass on Israel. But there's another really important detail here. In Zechariah 14.21, the word... For traders or merchants, that word about those who would be driven out of the house of the Lord of hosts, that word for traders can also be translated Canaanites. Canaanites. And so now you see the link between Joshua driving out the Canaanites from the land and Zechariah's prophecy of the Canaanites being driven out of the temple on the day of the Lord. And it leads us to Jesus driving out the latter day Canaanites from the temple. Now, if you've been following along, did you catch the irony? Did you catch the irony with that? Because the traitors Jesus drove out were Jews. They, were, they, were, they weren't Canaanites, they're were Israelites. What was the problem? They were Jews who had become Canaanites under God because they were rejecting Jesus Christ and they were exploiting people who needed to come to Jesus. And so they're coming under God the Son's judgment. Jesus then said, verse 17, He was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The reference to the house of prayer comes from Isaiah 56, verses 6 to 8, which says, foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, to minister to Him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these, these foreigners, I will bring to my holy mountain and make make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. You see, the point is that the place of the temple was to be this magnet for the nations. Yes, it was a Jewish temple, but it was to bring in the ingathering of the Gentiles. That was the anticipation. And it gathers in the foreigners, gathers in the Gentiles, gathers even the outcasts, the outsiders of Israel. Tragically, by that point, the temple was not being that kind of house of prayer anymore. So Jesus drove out the hindrances. Of course, the irony is that Jesus himself would bring the Gentiles and the outcasts of Israel together. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 56. Jesus is God who gathers others to God. The reference to the den of robbers comes from Jeremiah 7, 8-11, which says, Behold, you, you, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all of these abominations. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Sounds like a lot of churches I know, so-called, where people will carry on in such worldliness and ungodliness and then show up to the deliverance ministry and say, I am delivered, all good, I went to church today. All good. But Jesus saw this. He saw it and he called them out on it. He called them out on it. The day of the Lord had come and as Jesus said in Matthew 12, 6, I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And it was there. Now what's going to happen when he does this? What if you're in charge of the stewardship and administrative finances of the temple? And you've got this guy, and he's clearing house. He's, he just basically shut down your entire revenue stream. What are you going to do? Well, you're, you're going to react pretty, pretty strongly in response. You're, you're, you know, it says verse 18, The chief priests and the scribes heard it, and they were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him. Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. They had to shut this guy down before he shut them down. They're seeking to destroy the new temple. Because it threatened the old temple. But Jesus said, you remember in John 2.19, what did he say? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Referring not to the physical one, referring to himself. He's the new temple. Now this brings me then to the last point we see here, which is the power of prayer. Jesus' authority to do these things was challenged by the chief priests, the scribes and the elders in verse 27. The attack of the scribes and the Pharisees was against Jesus' authority. It was against Jesus and his rights, his entitled right, his royal rights. It was against all of that. It was his right to order things, to create things. Even for his right to be the new temple. To pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build and to plant. And to authoritatively appoint others to do the same, Jeremiah 1.10. So then Jesus has this little debate with him. He's got this little debate with these guys. But he refuses to kind of stoop to their level because he didn't have to explain himself. So they talk about John the Baptist and his role in ministry But he doesn't have to explain himself. His actions explain themselves. The leaders knew exactly what Jesus was communicating about the day of the Lord and the judgment upon unbelieving Israel. They knew it. And so they wanted to attack Jesus' authority, his authority to speak and to say and to do these things. And so what things, what things we may ask? Well then, the authority of Jesus was attacked for the three reasons we have in this passage. The curse of the fig tree, which is something only God could do. Entering the temple, Jesus was, he was felt entitled to stop the worship of the temple. Who does this guy think he is? You got this temple going on with this worship and Jesus waltzes in there and he says, everybody out. Shutting it down, I've got the authority to stop the worship of the temple. They didn't like that. But the third reason added to all of his authority, all of his rights and all of his entitlements that he was claiming, was his willingness to give his disciples, you and me if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, to give his disciples the right and the entitlement to access that authority. It's an amazing thing. And that's what really triggered the scribes to come at Jesus. And we got to ask them, how can disciples, mere followers of Jesus, how can they access the rights and entitlements and authority of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son who made heaven and earth? How can we access that? How is that possible? Well, how do they do that? That little P word. Prayer. By prayer. By by being not in a physical house of prayer. By not getting on a flight and flying to Israel and getting on the tour bus and going to the Temple Mount and getting there and then, oh, now I'm at the place of prayer No, no, I don't have to do all that. I don't bother with that stuff. But it's by dwelling in Christ in prayer and having Christ dwell in you. It's not being secured in the Temple Mount, but being hid with Christ in God. Colossians chapter 3. So we read then in verses 20 to 25. So they passed by in the morning. They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Peter remembered. He said, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. And what does Jesus say? Verse 22. Have faith in God. Have faith in God. Have faith, not in yourself. Have faith in God. Not faith in faith. Not faith in fleeces. Not faith in the government. Certainly not have faith in god this is the pure foundation of it all to have true unwavering unadulterated faith in god and then he says verse 23 truly truly he says truly i say to you whoever says to this mountain be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes in what he says will come to pass it will be done for you therefore i tell you whatever you ask in prayer believe that you have received it and it will be yours and this, yes, this is the grand potential of prayer, but when you and me hear it, probably, when you and me hear it, we think it's got to be coming out of the mouth of some TV preacher. We think, we think somebody's trying to sell us something. That this is health and wealth stuff. We think it is impossible. It's pie in the sky. It's not realistic. And so we think, like the liberal commentators, we think, oh, well, this is just dramatic overstatement for effect. It's just rhetorical effect. He doesn't really mean that. But no, Jesus is speaking of the potential of prayer. Or rather, the free ability of God to do anything and everything that he wills and his desire to actually answer the prayers of his children. Now the problem is that we cannot be free, you and me, when we go to pray, we cannot be free from the doubt that we drag along in this life. We still are unbelieving a bit in all of our believing and all that we say and do. Even our most pure prayers have the taint of unbelief? Do I believe that God is able to save every soul in Calgary? I do, but I don't. I do, but I don't. I do think he's powerful, but if I think deep down, I don't really act like that. I don't really that's the problem the problem is that we can't be free from doubt in this life we we still believe what is as Jesus told Thomas you know old doubting doubting Thomas in John 20 27 he said do not be unbelieving but believing why because the temptation is to be unbelieving even when you're wanting to be believing For it says in James 4, 2 and 3, you do not have, why? Because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So we still need help. We need help. But thankfully, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know how to, We do not not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Romans 8.26 Our problem is not the incapacity of our prayer to God, but the incapacity of our faith in God. And the offensive part for the scribes, the chief priests and the elders, was that Jesus had been illustrating that he is God. So the prayer of faith is is a prayer to and through Jesus Christ, the Son, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Every prayer then is a confession of the deity of Christ. Every prayer is a confession of the power of Christ. Every prayer is a confession of the authority of Christ. If you're the last couple of days, if you're at the King and Kingdom conference, the logical result of attendance at that conference, should be a new appropriation of the power of prayer. Now, prayer was not necessarily a theme of the conference, but the king and his kingdom was. But that's how you respond. A new sense of the sweetness of supplication. A new sense of the power of prayer. And your prayers then will have a new power as you confess the authority of the king. And the reason why you're distracted or you don't really care or you're you know it's low priority going to church or low priority reading the Bible it's just you don't you don't really believe in the authority of Jesus to tell you what you're supposed to do that he owns you He owns you And you need to do what he says because he owns you and he's good and he knows what's best for you And that's, though, that is what the scribes and the chief priests were so incensed about. Why they had to attack him. They were upset because of the final illustration that Jesus had made. They were triggered by it. You know, that's how we kind of put it. They were triggered by the entitlement that Jesus claimed as God, but accessed by man. Accessed by man. Because Jesus pointed also to the hardest part of the whole deal. It is the hardest prayer for a sinner to make, and it's the hardest one. Hardest prayer, each person, in each pew, all the way down. It is the hardest prayer that each of you and me would make. The hardest prayer. What would that be? What would the hardest prayer be to make? The one that would be the most impossible, the most difficult. What would that hardest prayer be? Well, it's actually something that only God can exclusively do and it is the prayer for the capacity to forgive. The capacity to forgive. Verse 25, when you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your Father also who is in heaven may may forgive you your trespasses. Forgiveness of sins is the prerogative of God. But since He calls His people to be like Him, we are to forgive the sins of others against us. As for God, we know, Psalm 130, verse 4, but With you there is forgiveness of sins that you may be feared. And as for man, we know, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, Matthew 6.14. God's forgiveness is complete, unbreakable, unchangeable. Our forgiveness is partial, it's fickle, it's changing. So we have to go to God for the capacity to forgive. We have to go to Him, but we first have to believe in God. Hebrews eleven six. we must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. In other words, we must seek God's forgiveness of our sins for the power and the capacity for, to forgive the sins of others. If we do this, the remarkable thing is, and this might be different for you to consider now, if we do this, we start to function as the temple. Is that how you view yourself? As, you know, his church, the old church. Oh, it's the temple. No, no, actually, you people. This is the temple. We function as the temple. It's not just that Jesus fulfills the purpose of the temple, he does. He does. 1 John 2, two, He is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The world doesn't need to go to the temple mount to get their sins forgiven. They need to go to Jesus, but there's something more. Jesus said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him, John 14.23. That means that God is dwelling with believers as his new temple. Ephesians 2.20, speaking of this new temple, this new house of prayer. It is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together, it grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, by the Spirit. So in prayer, with true faith, the power of prayer to move mountains, the power of prayer to forgive. The forgiving is harder than the moving mountains. The forgiving is harder than the moving mountains. Your need to forgive. Is, it's a bigger mountain to climb than moving the mountain. Where does the power come from? This power is in God's temple. Where God dwells, even in his believers, the disciples of Jesus Christ who have God as their father indwelt by the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, seated at the right hand of the Father's throne. That is the power that we have. The power is there, the power in prayer, the power even to forgive, to be accessed by believing in him. And resting upon him and believing he is truly the true God. Quick applications just to close. This means that maybe you might want to think about coming to the prayer meeting on Wednesday. You're like, ah, I got stuff to do. I'm busy. You got crises and difficulties in your life. Do you believe that Jesus is God? That's where the power is. That's where the capacity is. It's, it's, it's there. You pray at home, yes, but pray with the people. Pray with the, the temple. Pray in the house of prayer. It requires sacrifice of your energy and your schedule, it doesn't have immediate gratification. You don't give to get, it's not a formula but it is a special time of praying and praying for your praying and praying for the praying of others so that we can all look with expectancy to God, to see God act and to do. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, Ephesians 3.20. That's what we have in the prayer meeting. Further, when you see, you want to go to the prayer meeting, if you're struggling with bitterness, you need to realize then you need to pray for justice. Instead of you taking your own vengeance on people, you need to realize that God will judge and curse the wicked, the unrepentant. He'll deal with stuff, and you need to leave it with Him. That's what's illustrated here as Jesus curses the fig tree. That's the second thing. But third, when you are bitter, And what should be good is not good. And what should be fruitful is not fruitful. And you're bitter about it. You need God's ability to give you the capacity to forgive because you don't have it. I know you don't. I don't. I don't have it natively, naturally to forgive people. I'm really good at holding a grudge. And I'm guessing you're really good at it too. But that is no good. You need God's help to forgive. To forgive your wife, to forgive your husband, to forgive others, to forgive people you don't know but who have done things against you. You need God's help. And when you do that, and you ask God for the power to forgive, He's able to do remarkable things and make a sinner someone who can forgive other sinners against him. And when you do that, you are like Christ and you know then that you are dwelling in the temple for God is dwelling in you. And that is the most precious thing in the whole world. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we ask that you would help us to forgive So we ask this prayer in our weakness, but in your authoritative power and strength. Oh, Lord, help us to believe. We believe, Lord. Help our unbelief. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I ask you to stand and respond to the king in all of his rights and entitlements, even in his rule and reign over his kingdom. Please stand. Emmanuel, God with us, says this. Matthew 28, verse 18, All authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age, he says. That is our commission and to be this new temple unto God. Go and be it. Go in peace. You're dismissed.